0: This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents Night Flyers by George R. R. Martin. Read for you by Adenrele Ojo. Introduction read by the author.
1: I never read horror stories as a kid. At least, I never called them that. Monster stories, though, those I loved. At Halloween, when we went out trick-or-treating, I always wanted to be a ghost or monster, never a cowboy or a hobo or a clown. The plaza was the dingiest of Bayonne's three regular movie theaters, but I never missed their monster matinees on Saturday afternoons. Admission was only a quarter. The Dewitt and the Lyceum, the more upscale theaters, were where I saw William Castle's gimmick films, The Tingler and Thirteen Ghosts. The one time I set foot inside The Victory— Bayonne's cavernous old decaying opera house, closed during most of my childhood. That was for a monster movie, too. The seats were musty and dusty, and, it turned out, infested. I came home covered with insect bites, and the victory was boarded up again shortly thereafter. There was scary stuff on television as well. You could catch the old universal horror films at night if your mother let you stay up late enough. The Wolfman was my favorite monster— I like Count Dracula and Frankenstein. He was always Frankenstein to us, never Frankenstein's monster or the monster. The Creature from the Black Lagoon and the Invisible Man were not to be compared to the Big Three, and the Mummy was just stupid. Besides the old movies, the Tube also offered the occasional creepy episode of The Twilight Zone and The Alfred Hitchcock Show. But Thriller, hosted by Boris Karloff, was scarier than both and then some. Their adaptation of Robert E. Howard's Pigeons from Hell frightened me as much as anything I ever saw on television until the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War didn't have a guy come down a staircase with an axe buried in his head. I devoured monster comics, too, though I was too young for the really good ones, Tales from the Crypt and its moldering EC ilk. I read about those later in the fanzines, but never owned a copy. I do recall coming across a beat-up old comic at the local barbershop that was a lot scarier than the ones that I was buying— almost certainly an old E.C. that the Barber still had lying around. He had piles of old pre-D.C. Blackhawk comics as well. Before Marvel was Marvel, they published a lot of not especially scary monster comics, where the monsters had these goofy names and came from outer space. Those I got, though they were tepid fare for the most part, and I never liked them half as well as superhero comics. Funny books, movies, and television planted the seeds— and monstrous seeds they were. But my love of actual horror fiction did not take root until 1965, when I paid fifty cents—outrageous the way book prices were going up—for an Avon paperback anthology called Boris Karloff's Favorite Horror Stories, and read The Haunter of the Dark by H. P. Lovecraft. There were some other great yarns in that book as well, by the likes of Poe, Cornbluth, and Robert Bloch but the Lovecraft was the one that caught me by the throat and wouldn't let go. I was afraid to go to sleep that night. The next day I began looking for more books with stories by H.P.L., who had vaulted to the top of my personal hit parade, where he remained for a long time, sharing pride of place with R.A.H. and J.R.R.T. We write what we read. I never read Zane Gray growing up, and I've never written a Western. I did read Heinlein, Tolkien, and Lovecraft. It was inevitable that one day I would set out to make some monsters of my own. As for those hybrids, long before H.P. Lovecraft came into my life, I once found a chemistry set waiting underneath the Christmas tree. Chemistry sets were all the rage in the 50s and were found beneath as many trees as Lionel trains or Roy Rogers gun belts with the matching six-shooters. If you were a boy... Girls got the Dale Evans set and Betty Crocker baking sets instead of chemistry sets. It was the age of Sputnik, the age of Charles Van Doren, the age of the Atom. America wanted all us boys to grow up to be rocket scientists so we could beat the damn Ruskies to the moon. The chemistry sets they sold then, and may still be selling for all I know, consisted of a big hinged metal box with racks of little glass jars of chemicals inside along with test tubes and beakers, and an instructional booklet describing the various educational experiments you could perform. On the front of the box, there was usually a picture of a clean-cut boy, never a girl, in a white lab coat holding up a test tube as he performed one of the many educational experiments. White lab coats were not included. Somewhere, I do not doubt, there must have been some kids like him, kids who dutifully followed the instructions performed the educational experiments, learned many valuable scientific things, and grew up to be chemists. I never knew any, though. All the kids I knew who got chemistry sets for Christmas were more interested in trying to make stuff explode, or turn weird colors, or bubble and smoke. Let's see what will happen if we mix this with that, we would say, as we dreamed of finding a secret formula that would turn us into a superhero, or at least Mr. Hyde parents thought the chemistry sets would set us on the path to becoming Jonas Salk or Werner von Braun, but we were more interested in becoming one of the great victors, von Frankenstein or von Doom. Most of the time when we mixed this with that, all we made was a mess. That was probably a good thing. If we had ever actually found a formula that turned weird colors and bubbled and smoked, we might have tried to drink it, or at the very least, see if our little sister could be convinced to drink it. My chemistry set soon ended up at the back of my closet, gathering dust behind my collection of TV guides. But my passion for mixing this with that remained as I grew older and found expression in my fiction. Modern publishing loves to sort the tales we tell into categories, producing racks of books that resemble the racks of little bottles in the chemistry set, with neat little labels that read mystery, romance, romance. Western. Historical. SF. Juvenile. Fooey, I say. Let's mix this with that and see what happens. Let's cross some genre lines and blur some boundaries. Make some stories that are both and neither. Some of the time we'll make a mess, sure. But once in a while, if we do it right, we may stumble on a combination that explodes. With that as my philosophy... It's no wonder that I've produced a number of odd hybrids over the years. Fever Dream is one such. Although most often categorized as horror, it is as much a steamboat novel as a vampire novel. The Armageddon Rag is even more difficult to classify. Fantasy, horror, murder mystery, rock and roll novel, political novel, sixties novel. It's got Froggy to Gremlin too. Even my fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire, is a hybrid of sorts inspired as much by the historical fiction of Thomas B. Costain and Nigel Tranter as the fantasy of Tolkien, Howard, and Fritz Leiber. The two genres that I've mixed most often, though, are horror and science fiction. I was doing it as early as my second sale. Despite its SF setting, The Exit to San Breda is a ghost story at heart, though admittedly not a very frightening one. My first two corpse handler tales, Nobody Leaves New Pittsburgh and Override, were further fumbling attempts at the same sort of cross-pollination, offering as they did a science fictional take on an old friend from the world of horror, the zombie. I was going for a horrific feel in Dark Dark with the Tunnels as well, and much more successfully in the later stronger work, my novella, In the House of the Worm. Some critics have argued that horror and science fiction are actually antithetical to one another. They can make a plausible case, certainly, especially in the case of Lovecraftian horror. SF assumes that the universe is ultimately knowable, while Lovecraft suggests that even a glimpse of the true nature of reality would be enough to drive men mad. You cannot get much further from the Campbellian view of the cosmos as that. In Billion Year Spree, his insightful study of the history of science fiction, Brian W. Aldis puts John W. Campbell at the genre's thinking pole and H.P. Lovecraft all the way over at the dreaming pole on the opposite end of the literary universe. And yet, both men wrote stories that can fairly be described as SF horror hybrids. There are, in fact, some startling similarities between H.P.L.'s At the Mountains of Madness and J.W.C.'s Who Goes There? Both are effective horror stories, but both work as science fiction, too. And Who Goes There is probably the best thing Campbell ever wrote, while At the Mountains of Madness must surely rank in Lovecraft's top five. That's hybrid vigor. The original version of Night Flyers, published in analog with a nice Paul Lair cover, weighed in at 23,000 words. But even at that length, I felt it was severely compressed, especially in the handling of its secondary characters. They did not even have names, only job titles. When Jim Frankel of Dell Books offered to buy an expanded version of the novella for his new Binary Star series, an attempt to revive the old Ace Doubles concept, I leapt at the opportunity. It is the Binary Star version you'll find here. Night Flyers won the Locust Pole as Best Novella of 1980, but lost the Hugo to Gordon R. Dixon's Lost Dorsi at Denvention. It was soon optioned by Hollywood and became the first of my works to be made into a feature film. The movie starred Catherine Mary Stewart and Michael Praed, and was so terrific that the director took his name off the film. Large hunks of my story are still recognizable in the movie, although for some inexplicable reason the single scariest sequence in the novella was dropped. In 1986, I edited the horror anthology Night Visions 3 for Dark Harvest. In my introduction, I wrote... Those who claim that we read horror stories for the same reasons we ride roller coasters are missing the point. At the best of times, we come away from a roller coaster with a simple adrenaline high, and that's not what fiction is about. Like a roller coaster, a really bad horror story can perhaps make us sick, but that's as far as the comparison extends. We go to fiction for things beyond those to be found in amusement parks. A good horror story will frighten us, yes. It will keep us awake at night. It will make our flesh crawl. It will creep into our dreams and give new meaning to the darkness. Fear, terror, horror, call it what you will, it drinks from all those cups. But please, don't confuse the feelings with simple vertigo. The great stories, the ones that linger in our memories and change our lives, are never really about the things that they're about. Bad horror stories concern themselves with six ways to kill a vampire and graphic accounts of how the rats ate Billy's genitalia. Good horror stories are about larger things, about hope and despair, about love and hatred, lust and jealousy, about friendship and adolescence and sexuality and rage, loneliness and alienation and psychosis, courage and cowardice, the human mind and body and spirit under stress and in agony, The human heart in unending conflict with itself. Good horror stories make us look at our reflections in dark, distorting mirrors, where we glimpse things that disturb us, things that we did not really want to look at. Horror looks into the shadows of the human soul, at the fears and rages that live within us all. But darkness is meaningless without light, and horror is pointless without beauty. The best horror stories are stories first and horror second, And however much they scare us they do more than that as well they have room in them for laughter as well as screams for triumph and tenderness as well as tragedy they concern themselves not simply with fear but with life in all its infinite variety with love and death and birth and hope and lust and transcendence with the whole range of experiences and emotions that make up the human condition their characters are people people who linger in our imagination people like those around us, people who do not exist solely to be the objects of violent slaughter in Chapter 4. The best horror stories tell us truths. That was almost twenty years ago, but I stand by every word.
0: When Jesus of Nazareth hung dying on his cross, the Vulcran passed within a year of his agony, headed outward, When the fire wars raged on Earth, the Vulcans sailed near old Poseidon, where the seas were still unnamed and unfished. By the time the Star Drive had transformed the Federated Nations of Earth into the Federal Empire, the Vulcans had moved into the fringes of Harangan space. The Harangans never knew it. Like us, they were children of the small, bright worlds, that circled their scattered sons with little interest and less knowledge of the things that moved in the gulfs between. War flamed for a thousand years, and the Vulcran passed through it, unknowing and untouched, safe in a place where no fires could ever burn. Afterwards, the Federal Empire was shattered and gone, and the Harangans vanished in the dark of the Collapse but it was no darker for the Vulcran. When Chloronimus took his survey ship out from Avalon, the Vulcran came within ten light-years of him. Chloronimus found many things, but he did not find the Vulcran. Not then, and not on his return to Avalon a lifetime later. When I was a child of three, Chloronimus was dust, as distant and dead as Jesus of Nazareth, and the Vulcran passed close to Duran. That season, all the Cray sensitives grew strange, and sat staring at the stars with luminous, flickering eyes. When I was grown, the Vulcran had sailed beyond Terra, past the range of even the Cray, still heading outward. And now I am old and growing older, and the Vulcran will soon pierce the tempter's veil where it hangs like a black mist between the stars. And we follow. We follow. Through the dark gulfs where no one goes, through the emptiness, through the silence that goes on and on. My night flyer and I give chase. They made their way slowly down the length of the transparent tube that linked the orbital docks to the waiting starship ahead, pulling themselves hand over hand through weightlessness. Melantha Jurl, the only one among them who did not seem clumsy and ill at ease in freefall, paused briefly to look at the dappled globe of Avalon below, a stately vastness in jade and amber. She smiled and moved swiftly down the tube, passing her companions with an easy grace. They had boarded starships before, all of them, but never like this. Most ships docked flush against the station, but the craft that Coroli de Brannan had chartered for his mission was too large and too singular in design. It loomed ahead, three small eggs side by side, two larger spheres beneath and at right angles, the cylinder of the drive-room between, lengths of tube connecting it all. The ship was white and austere. Melantha was the first one through the airlock. The others straggled up one by one until they had all boarded, five women and four men, each an Academy scholar, their backgrounds as diverse as their fields of study. The frail young telepath, Tala Lassimer, was the last to enter. He glanced about nervously as the others chatted and waited for the entry procedure to be completed. We're being watched, he said. The outer door was closed behind them. The tube had fallen away. Now the inner door slid open. Welcome to my night flyer, said a mellow voice from within. But there was no one there. Melantha Gerald stepped into the corridor. Hello? She said, looking about quizzically. Caroli de Brannan followed her. Hello? The mellow voice replied. It was coming from a communicator grill beneath a darkened view screen. This is Royd Eris, Master of the Nightflyer. I am pleased to see you again, Caroli, and pleased to welcome the rest of you. Where are you? Someone demanded in my quarters which occupy half of this life-support sphere, the voice of Royd Eris replied amiably. The other half is comprised of a lounge-library kitchen, two sanitary stations, one double cabin, and a rather small single. The rest of you will have to rig sleepwebs in the cargo spheres, I'm afraid. The Nightfly was designed as a trader, not a passenger vessel. However, I've opened all the appropriate passageways and locks, so the holds have air and heat and water. I thought you'd find it more comfortable that way. Your equipment and computer system have been stowed in the holds, but there's still plenty of space, I assure you. I suggest you settle in, and then meet in the lounge for a meal. Will you join us? asked the Psyche. a querulous hatchet-faced woman named Agatha Mariege Black. In a fashion, Royd Aris said. In a fashion. The ghost appeared at the banquet. They found the lounge easily enough after they had rigged their sleep webs and arranged their personal belongings around their sleeping quarters. It was the largest room in this section of the ship. One end of it was a fully equipped kitchen well stocked with provisions. The opposite end offered several comfortable chairs, two readers, a hollow tank, and a wall of books and tapes and crystal chips. In the center was a long table with places set for ten. A light meal was hot and waiting. The academicians helped themselves and took seats at the table, laughing and talking to each other, more at ease now than when they had boarded. The ship's gravity grid was on, which went a long way towards making them more comfortable. The queasy awkwardness of their weightless transit was soon forgotten. Finally, all the seats were occupied except for one at the head of the table the ghosts materialized there. All conversation stopped. Hello, said the specter, the bright shade of a live, pale-eyed young man with white hair. He was dressed in clothing twenty years out of date, a loose blue pastel shirt that ballooned at his wrists, clinging white trousers with built-in boots. They could see through him, and his own eyes did not see them at all. A hologram, said Alice Northwind the short, stout Zenotech. Royd, Royd, I do not understand, said Caroli de Brannon, staring at the ghost. What is this? Why do you send us a projection? Will you not join us in person? The ghost smiled faintly and lifted an arm. My quarters are on the other side of that wall, he said. I'm afraid there is no door or lock between the two halves of the spear." I spend most of my time by myself and I value my privacy. I hope you will all understand and respect my wishes. I will be a gracious host nonetheless. Here in the lounge my projection can join you. Elsewhere, if you have anything you need, if you want to talk to me, just use a communicator. Now, please, resume your meal and your conversations. I'll gladly listen— it's been a long time since I had passengers. They tried, but the ghost at the head of the table cast a long shadow and the meal was strained and hurried. From the hour the night flyer slipped into star drive, Royd Aris watched his passengers. Within a few days, most of the academicians had grown accustomed to the disembodied voice from the communicators in the holographic specter in the lounge. But only Melantha Juro and Caroli de Brannan ever seemed really comfortable in his presence. The others would have been even more uncomfortable if they had known that Royd was always with them. Always and everywhere, he watched. Even in the sanitary stations, Royd had eyes and ears. He watched them work, eat, sleep, copulate. He listened untiringly to their talk. Within a week he knew them, all nine and had begun to ferret out their tawdry little secrets. The cyberneticist, Lamy Thorne, talked to her computers and seemed to prefer their company to that of humans. She was bright and quick, with a mobile, expressive face and a small, hard, boyish body. Most of the others found her attractive, but she did not like to be touched. She sexed only once with Juro. Lamy Thorne wore shirts of softly woven metal, and had an implant in her left wrist that let her interface directly with her computers. The xenobiologist, Rojan Christophorus, was a surly, argumentative man, a cynic whose contempt for his colleagues was barely kept in check, a solitary drinker. He was tall and stooped and ugly. The two linguists, Danel and Lindren, were lovers in public, constantly holding hands and supporting each other. In private, they quarreled bitterly. Lindgren had a mordant wit and liked to wound Danel when it hurt the most, with jokes about his professional competence. They sexed often, both of them, but not with each other. Agatha Mariege Black, the psych, was a hypochondriac given to black depressions, which worsened in the close confines of the night flyer. Xenotech Alice Northwin ate constantly and never washed. Her stubby fingernails were always caked with black dirt, and she wore the same jumpsuit for the first two weeks of the voyage, taking it off only for sex, and then only briefly. Telepath Tala Lassimer was nervous and temperamental, afraid of everyone around him, yet given to bouts of arrogance in which he taunted his companions with thoughts he had snatched from their minds. Royd Eris watched them all, studied them, lived with them, and through them. He neglected none, not even the ones he found the most distasteful. But by the time the Nightflyer had been lost in the roiling flux of Star Drive for two weeks, two of his riders had come to engage the bulk of his attention. Most of all, I want to know the why of them, Coroli de Brannan told him one false night the second week out from Avalon. Royd's luminescent ghost sat close to de Brannan in the darkened lounge, Watching him drink bittersweet chocolate. The others were all asleep. Night and day are meaningless on a starship, but the night flyer kept the usual cycles and most of the passengers followed them. Old DeBranin, administrator, generalist, and mission leader, was the exception. He kept his own hours, preferred work to sleep, and liked nothing better than to talk about his pet obsession, the Vulcran he haunted. The if of them is important as well, Caroli, Royd answered. Can you truly be certain these aliens of yours exist? I can be certain, Caroli de Brannan said, with a broad wink. He was a compact man, short and slender, iron-gray hair carefully styled, and his tunic almost fussily neat, but the expansiveness of his gestures and the giddy enthusiasms to which he was prone belied his sober appearance. That is enough. If everyone else were certain as well, we would have a fleet of research ships instead of your little night flyer. He sipped at his chocolate and sighed with satisfaction. Do you know the Nortaloosh, Royd? The name was strange, but it took Royd only a moment to consult his library computer. An alien race on the other side of human space, past the worlds and the Demouche, possibly legendary. DeBrennan chuckled. No, no, no. Your library is out of date, my friend. You must supplement it the next time you visit Avalon. Not legends, no, real enough, though far away. We have little information about the Nortelouch, but we are sure they exist, though you and I may never meet one. They were the start of it all. Tell me, Royd said. I am interested in your work, Karoli. I was coding some information into the academy computers, a packet newly arrived from Dam Tullian after twenty standard years in transit. Part of it was no Toulouse folklore. I had no idea how long that had taken to get to Dam Tullian or by what route it had come, but it did not matter. Folklore is timeless anyway and this was fascinating material. Do you know that my first degree was in Xenomythology? I did not. Please continue. The Volkran story was among the Nor Nortolushmiss. It awed me, a race of sentience moving out from some mysterious origin in the core of the galaxy, sailing towards the galactic edge, and it was alleged, eventually bound for intergalactic space itself. Meanwhile, always keeping to the interstellar depths, no planet falls sailed him coming within a light year of a star. DeBranin's gray eyes sparkled, and as he spoke his hands swept enthusiastically to either side as if they could encompass the galaxy. And doing it without a star drive, Royd, that is the real wonder. Doing it in ships moving only a fraction of the speed of light." That was the detail that obsessed me. How different they must be, my Vulcran. Wise and patient, long-lived and long-viewed, with none of the terrible haste and passion that consumes the lesser races. Think how old they must be, the Vulcran ships. Old, Royd agreed. Coroli, you said ships, more than one? Oh, yes, DeBranon said. According to the Nortelouch, one or two appeared first on the innermost edges of their trading sphere, but others followed, hundreds of them, each solitary, moving by itself, bound outward, always outward. The direction was always the same. For fifteen thousand standard years, they moved among the Nortelouch stars, and then they began to pass out from among them. The myth said that the last Vulcan ship was gone three thousand years ago. Eighteen thousand years, Royd said, adding. Are the North that old? Not as star travelers know, De Brannan said, smiling. According to their own histories, the North Toulouse have only been civilized for about half that long. That bothered me for a while. It seemed to make the Vulcan story clearly a legend. A wonderful legend, true, but nothing more. Ultimately, however, I could not let it alone. In my spare time, I investigated, cross-checking with other alien cosmologies to see whether this particular myth was shared by any races other than the Nortelouch. I thought perhaps I could get a thesis out of it. It seemed a fruitful line of inquiry. I was startled by what I found. Nothing from the Harangans or the Harangan slave races, but that made sense, you see. Since they were out from human space, the Vulcan would not reach them until after they had passed through their own sphere. When I looked in, however, the Vulcan story was everywhere. Brannan leaned forward eagerly. Ah, Royd, the stories, the stories. Tell me, Royd said. The Findi call them Iwiwi, which translates to something like Void Horde or Dark Horde. Each Findi horde tells the same story, only the mind-mutes disbelieve. The ships are said to be vast, much larger than any known in their history or ours. Warships, they say. There is a story of a lost Findi horde, 300 ships under Ralefin all destroyed utterly when they encountered an Iwivi, This was many thousands of years ago, of course, so the details are unclear. The Demouche have a different story, but they accept it as a literal truth. And the Demouche, you know, are the oldest race we've yet encountered. The people of the Gulf they call my Vulcan. Lovely stories, Freud, lovely! Sheets like great dark cities, still and silent, moving at a slower pace than the universe around them. mush legends say the Vulcans are refugees from some unimaginable war deep in the core of the galaxy at the very beginning of time. They abandoned the worlds and the stars on which they had evolved, sought true peace in the emptiness between. The guestroids of Ath have a similar story, but in their tale that war destroyed all life in our galaxy, and the Vulcran are gods of a sort, receding the worlds as they pass. Other races see them as gods' messengers, or shadows out of hell warning us to flee, some terror soon to emerge from the core. Your stories contradict each other, Caroli. Yes, yes, of course, but they all agree on the essentials. The Volgrans sailing out, passing through our short-lived empires and transient glories in their ancient, eternal sublight ships. That is what matters. The rest is frippery, ornamentation. We will soon know the truth of it. I checked what little was known about the races said to flourish further in steel beyond even the Nor talush civilizations and peoples half legendary themselves, like the Danlai and the Ulish and the Rohinika. And where I could find anything at all, I found the Vulcan story once again. The legend of the legends, Royd suggested, the specter's wide mouth turned up in a smile. Exactly, exactly, DeBranon agreed. At that point, I called in the experts, specialists from the Institute of the Study of Non-Human Intelligence. We researched for two years. It was all there in the libraries and memories and matrices of the Academy. No one had ever looked before or bothered to put it together. The Vulcan had been moving through the man-realm for most of human history since before the dawn of spaceflight. While we twist the fabric of space itself to cheat relativity, They have been sailing their great ships right through the heart of our alleged civilization, past our most populous worlds at stately slow sublight speeds bound for the fringe and the dark between the galaxies. Marvelous, Royd, marvelous. Marvelous, Royd agreed. Corolli de Brannan drained his chocolate cup with a swig and reached out to catch Royd's arm, but his hand passed through empty light. He seemed disconcerted for a moment before he began to laugh at himself. (laughs) Ah, my vulgren I grow over-enthused, Royd. I am so close now. They have preyed on my mind for a dozen years, and within the month I will have them will behold their splendor with my own weary eyes. Then... Then, if only I can open communication, if only my people can reach ones so great and strange as they, so different from us, I have hopes, Royd, hopes that at last I will know the why of it. The ghost of Royd Eris smiled for him and looked on through calm, transparent eyes. Passengers soon grow restless on a starship under drive, sooner on one as small and as spare as the Nightflyer. Late in the second week, the speculation began in deadly earnest. Who is this Royd Eris really? The xenobiologist, Rojan Christophorus, complained one night when four of them were playing cards. Why doesn't he come out? What's the purpose of keeping himself sealed off from the rest of us? I ask him, suggested of the male linguist. What if he's a criminal of some sort? Christopher said. Do we know anything about him? No, of course not. De engaged him, and DeBranin is a sea now old fool. We all know that. It's your play, Lamy Thorne said. Christopher snapped down a card. Sit back, he declared. You'll have to draw again. He grinned. As for this heiress, who knows that he isn't planning to kill us all? For our vast wealth, no doubt, said Lindrin, the female linguist. She played a card on top of the one Christophorus had laid down. Ricochet, she called softly. She smiled. So did Royd Eris, watching. Melanthagirl was good to watch. Young, healthy, active, Melanthagirl had a vibrancy about her the others could not match. She was big in every way a head taller than anyone else on board, large-framed, large-breasted, long-legged, strong, muscles moving fluidly beneath shiny coal-black skin. Her appetites were big as well. She ate twice as much as any of her colleagues, drank heavily without ever seeming drunk, exercised for hours every day on equipment she had brought with her and set up in one of the cargo holds. By the third week out, she had sex with all four of the men on board and two of the other women. Even in bed, she was always active, exhausting most of her partners. Royd watched her with consuming interest. I am an improved model, she told him once as she worked out on her parallel bars, sweat glistening on her bare skin, her long black hair confined in a net. Improved, Royd said. He could not send his projection down to the holds, but Melantha had summoned him with a communicator to talk while she exercised not knowing he would have been there anyway. She paused in her routine, holding her body straight and aloft with the strength of her arms in her back. Altered, Captain, she said. She had taken to calling him Captain. Born on Prometheus among the elite, child of two genetic wizards. Improved, Captain. I require twice the energy you do, but I use it all a more efficient metabolism, a stronger and more durable body, an expected lifespan, half again than normal humans. My people have made some terrible mistakes when they try to radically redesign humanity, but the small improvements they do well. She resumed her exercises, moving quickly and easily, silent until she had finished. When she was done, she vaulted away from the bars and stood breathing heavily for a moment, then crossed her arms and cocked her head and grinned. Now you know my life story, Captain, she said. She pulled off the net to shake free her hair. Surely there is more, said the voice from the communicator. Melanthagirl laughed. Surely, she said. Do you want to hear about my defection to Avalon? The whys and wherefores of it? The trouble it caused my family on Prometheus? Or are you more interested in my- extraordinary work in cultural xenology. Do you want to hear about that? Perhaps some other time, Royd said politely. What is that crystal you wear? It hung between her breasts ordinarily. She had removed it when she stripped for her exercises. She picked it up again and slipped it over her head, a small green gem laced with traceries of black on a silver chain. When it touched her, Melantha closed her eyes briefly, then opened them again, grinning. "'It's alive,' she said. "'Haven't you ever seen one? A whisper jewel, Captain?' Resonant crystal etched psionically to hold a memory, a sensation. The touch brings it back for a time. "'I am familiar with the principle,' Royd said. "'But not this use. Yours contains some treasured memory, then?' Of your family, perhaps. Jules snatched up a towel and began to dry the sweat from her body. Mine contains the sensations of a particularly satisfying session in bed, Captain. It arouses me. Or it did. Whisper jewels fade in time, and this isn't as potent as it once was. But sometimes, often when I've come from love making or strenuous exercise, it comes alive on me again like it just did then. Oh, said Roy's voice. It has made you aroused, then. Are you going off to copulate now? Melantha grinned. I know what part of my life you want to hear about, Captain. My tumultuous and passionate love life. Well, you won't have it. Not until I hear your life story anyway. Among my modest attributes is an insatiable curiosity. Who are you, Captain? Really? One as improved as you, Royd replied. Should certainly be able to guess. Melantha laughed and tossed her towel at the communicator grill. Lamy Thorne spent most of her days in the cargo hold they had designated as the computer room, setting up the system they would use to analyze the Vulcran. As often as not, the xenotech Alice Northwind came with her to lend a hand. The cyberneticist whistled as she worked. Northwin obeyed her orders in a sullen silence. Occasionally, they talked. Eris isn't human, Lamithorn said one day, as she supervised the installation of a display view screen. Alice Northwyn grunted. What? A frown broke across her square, flat features. Christophorus, and his talk, had made her nervous about Eris. She clicked another component into position and turned. He talks to us, but he can't be seen, the cyberneticist said. This ship is uncrewed, seemingly all automated except for him. Why not entirely automated, then? I'd wager this roid heiress is a fairly sophisticated computer system, perhaps a genuine artificial intelligence. Even a modest program can carry on a blind conversation indistinguishable from a human's. This one could fool you, I'd bet, once it's up and running. The Zenotech grunted and turned back to her work. Why fake being human, then? Because, said Lommy Thorne, most legal systems give AIs no rights. A ship can't own itself, even on Avalon. The Nightfly is probably afraid of being seized and disconnected. She whistled. Death, Alice, the end of self-awareness and conscious thought. I work with machines every day. Alice Northwind said stubbornly. Turn them off. Turn them on. Makes no difference. They all mind. Why should this machine care? Lamy Thorne smiled. A computer is different, Alice, she said. Mind, thought, life, the big systems have all of that. Her right hand curled around her left wrist, and her thumb began idly rubbing the nubs of her implant. Sensation, too, I know. No one wants the end of sensation. They are not so different from you and I, really. The xenotech glanced back and shook her head. Really, she repeated in a flat, disbelieving voice. Royd Eris listened and watched, unsmiling. Tala Lassimer was a frail young thing. Nervous, sensitive, with limp flaxen hair that fell to his shoulders and watery blue eyes. Normally he dressed like a peacock, favoring the lacy V-necked shirts and cod pieces that were still the fashion among the lower classes of his homeworld. But on the day he sought out Coroli de Brannon in his cramped private cabin, Lassimer was dressed almost somberly in an austere gray jumpsuit. "'I feel it,' he said, clutching de Brannon by the arm." his long fingernails digging in painfully. Something is wrong, Carolie. Something is very wrong. I'm beginning to get frightened. The telepath's nails bit into Brandon, and pulled away hard. You are hurting me, he protested. My friend, what is it? Frightened? Of what? Of whom? I do not understand. What could there be to fear? Lassimer raised pale hands to his face. I don't know. I don't know, he wailed. Yet it's there. I feel it. "'Carolia, I'm picking up something. You know I'm good. I am. That's why you picked me. Just a moment ago, when my nails dug into you, I felt it.' "'I can read you now and flash it. You're thinking I'm too excitable, that it's the confinement, that I've got to be calmed down.' The young man laughed a thin, hysterical laugh that died as quickly as it had begun. "'No, you see. I am good. Class one, test it. And I tell you I am afraid.' "'I sense it, feel it, dream of it. "'I felt it even as we were boarding, and it's gotten worse. "'Something dangerous, something volatile, an alien, Coroli, alien!' "'The Volcran?' Brannan said. "'No, impossible. We're in drive. They're light years away.' "'The edgy laughter sounded again. "'I'm not that good, Coroli. "'I've heard your crazy story, but I'm only a human.' No, this is close. On the ship. One of us? Maybe, Lassimer said. He rubbed his cheek absently. I can't sort it out. DeBranin put a fatherly hand on his shoulder. Tala, this feeling of yours, could it be that you are just tired? We have all of us been under strain. Inactivity can be taxing. Get your hand off me, Lassimer snapped. Brannan drew back his hand quickly. "'This is real,' the telepath insisted. "'And I don't need you thinking that maybe you shouldn't have taken me. All that crap. I am as stable as anyone on this—this—how dare you think I'm unstable? You ought to look inside some of these others. Christophorus with his bottle and his dirty little fantasies. Dan will half sick with fear.' Lamy and her machines with her, it's all metal and lights and cool circuits. Sick, I tell you. And Jill's arrogant, and Agatha whines even in her head to herself all the time. And Alice is empty, like a cow. You, you don't touch them. See into them. What do you know of stable? Losers, De Brannan. They've given you a bunch of losers and I'm one of your best. So don't you go thinking that I'm not stable, not sane, you hear? His blue eyes were fevered. Do you hear? Easy, Debrannon said. Easy. Tella, you are getting excited. The telepath blinked, and suddenly the wildness was gone. Excited, he said. Yes. He looked around guiltily. It's hard, Corolli, but listen to me, you must. I'm warning you, we're in danger. I will listen, DeBranon said, but I cannot act without more definite information. You must use your talent and get it for me, yes? You can do that. Lassimer nodded. Yes, he said, yes. They talked quietly for more than an hour, and finally the telepath left peacefully. Afterwards, DeBrandon went straight to the sci- Psyche, who was lying in her sleepweb surrounded by medicines, complaining bitterly of aches. Interesting, she said when DeBrandon told her. I felt something, too, a sense of threat, very vague, diffuse. I thought it was me, the confinement, the boredom, the way I feel. My moods betray me at times. Did he say anything more specific? No. I'll make an effort to move around, read them, read the others, see what I can pick up. Although, if this is real, he should know it first. He's a one. I'm only a three. Brannan nodded. He seems very receptive, he said. He told me all kinds of things about the others. Means nothing. Sometimes when a telepath insists he's picking up everything, what it means is that he's picking up nothing at all. He imagines feelings, readings, to make up for those that will not come. I'll keep careful watch on him, Brannan. Sometimes a talent can crack, slip into a kind of hysteria, and begin to broadcast instead of receive. An enclosed environment that's very dangerous. Caroli de Brannan nodded. Of course. Of course. In another part of the ship, Royd Eris frowned. Have you noticed the clothing on that holograph he sends us? Rojan Christophorus asked Alice Northwyn. They were alone in one of the holds, reclining on a mat, trying to avoid the wet spot. The xenobiologist had lit a joystick. He offered it to his companion, but Northwind waved it away. A decade out of style, maybe more. My father wore shirts like that when he was a boy on old Poseidon. Eric has an old-fashioned taste, Alice Northwind said. So? I don't care what he wears. Me? I like my jumpsuits. They're comfortable don't care what people think. You don't, do you? Christophorus said, wrinkling his huge nose. She did not see the gesture. Well, you miss the point. What if that isn't really Eris? A projection can be anything, can be made up out of whole cloth. I don't think he really looks like that. No? Now her voice was curious. She rolled over and curled up beneath his arm, her heavy white breasts against his chest what if he's sick deformed ashamed to be seen the way he really looks christopherus said perhaps he has some disease the slow plague can waste a person terribly but it takes decades to kill and there are other contagions manthrax new leprosy the melt Langeman's disease lots of them could be that royd's self-imposed quarantine is just that a quarantine Think about it. Alice Northwind frowned. All this talk of Eris, she said, is making me edgy. The xenobiologist sucked on his joystick and laughed. <sighs> Welcome to the night flyer, then. <laughs> the rest of us are already there. In the fifth week out, Melantha Gerald pushed her pawn to the sixth rank, and Royd saw that it was unstoppable and resigned. It was his eighth straight defeat at her hands in as many days. She was sitting cross-legged on the floor of the lounge, the chessmen spread out before her in front of a darkened view screen. Laughing, she swept them all away. Don't feel bad, Royd, she told him. I am an improved model, always three moves ahead. I should tie in my computer, he replied. You'd never know. His ghost materialized suddenly, standing in front of the view screen and smiled at her. I'd know within three moves, Gerald said. Try it. They were the last victims of a chest fever that had swept the Nightflyer for more than a week. Initially it had been Christophorus who had produced the set and urged people to play, but the others had lost interest quickly when Tala Lassimer sat down and beat them all, one by one. Everyone was certain that he'd done it by reading their minds, but the telepath was in a volatile, nasty mood and no one dared voice the accusation. Melantha, however, had been able to defeat Lassimer without very much trouble. He isn't that good a player, she told Royd afterwards, and if he's trying to lift ideas for me, he's getting gibberish. The improved model knows certain mental disciplines. I can shield myself well enough, thank you. Christophorus and a few of the others then tried a game or two against Melantha and were routed for their troubles. Finally, Royd asked if he might play. Only Melantha and Caroli were willing to sit down with him over the board, and since Caroli could barely recall how the pieces moved from one moment to the next, that left Melantha and Royd as regular opponents. They both seemed to thrive on the games, though Melantha always won. Melantha stood up and walked to the kitchen, stepping right through Royd's ghostly form, which she steadfastly refused to pretend was real. The rest of them walk around me, Royd complained. She shrugged and found a bulb of beer in a storage compartment. When are you going to break down and let me behind your wall for a visit, Captain? She asked. Don't you get lonely back there? Sexually frustrated? Claustrophobic? I have flown the night flyer all my life, Melantha, Royd said. His projection, ignored, winked out. If I was subject to claustrophobia, sexual frustration, or loneliness, such a life would have been impossible. Surely that should be obvious to you, being as improved a model as you are. She took a squeeze of her beer and laughed her mellow, musical laugh at him. I'll solve you yet, Captain, she warned. Meanwhile, he said, tell me some more lies about your life. Have you ever heard of Jupiter? the xenotech demanded of the others. She was drunk, lolling in her sleepweb in the cargo hold. Something to do with Earth, said Lindren. The same myth system originated both names, I believe. Jupiter, the xenotech announced loudly, is a gas giant in the same solar system as old Earth. Didn't know that, did you? I've got more important things to occupy my mind than such trivia, Alice, Lindren said. Alice Northwind smiled down smugly. Listen, I'm talking to you. They were on the verge of exploring this Jupiter when the star drive was discovered all way back. After that, course... No one bothered with gas giants. Just slip into drive and find the habitable worlds, settle them, ignore the comets and the rocks and the gas giants. There's another star just a few light years away, and it has more habitable planets. But there were people who thought those Jupiters might have life, you know? Do you see? I see that you're blind drunk. Lindrin said. Christophorus looked annoyed. "'If there is intelligent life on the gas giants, it shows no interest in leaving them,' he snapped. "'All of the sentient species we have met up to now have originated on worlds similar to Earth, and most of them are oxygen breathers, unless you're suggesting that the Vulcran are from a gas giant.' The xenotech pushed herself up to a sitting position and smiled conspiratorially. "'Not the Vulcran.' she said. Void Eris, crack that forward bulkhead in the lounge and watch the methane and ammonia come smoking out. Her hand made a sensuous waving motion through the air, and she convulsed with giddy laughter. The system was up and running. Cyberneticist Lamy Thorne sat at the master console, a featureless black plastic plate upon which the phantom images of a hundred keyboard configurations came and went in holographic display, vanishing and shifting even as she used them. Around her rose crystalline data grids, ranks of view screens and readout panels upon which columns of figures marched and geometric shapes did stately whirling dances, dark columns of seamless metal that contained the mind and soul of her system. She sat in the semi-darkness happily, whistling as she ran the computer through several simple routines, her fingers moving across the flickering keys with blind speed and quickening tempo. Ah, she said once, smiling. Later on only, good. Then it was time for the final run-through. Lamy Thorne slid back the metallic fabric of her left sleeve, pushed her wrists beneath the console, found the prongs, jacked herself in... Interface. Ecstasy. Inkblot shapes in a dozen glowing colors twisted and melded and broke apart on the readout screens. In an instant, it was over. Lamy Thorne pulled free her wrist. The smile on her face was shy and satisfied, but across it lay another expression, the merest hint of puzzlement she touched her thumb to the holes of her wrist jack and found them warm to the touch, tingling. Lamy shivered. The system was running perfectly, hardware in good condition, all software systems functioning according to plan, interface meshing well. It had been a delight, as it always was. When she joined with the system, she was wise beyond her years and powerful— And full of light and electricity and the stuff of life, cool and clean and exciting to touch, and never alone, never small or weak. That was what it was always like when she interfaced and let herself expand. But this time something had been different. Something cold had touched her only for a moment. Something very cold and very frightening, and together she and the system had seen it clearly for a brief moment and then it had been gone again. The cyberneticist shook her head and drove the nonsense out. She went back to work. After a time, she began to whistle. During the sixth week, Alice Northwind cut herself badly while preparing a snack. She was standing in the kitchen slicing a spiced meat stick with a long knife when suddenly she screamed. Dan'l and Lindren rushed to her and found her staring down in horror at the chopping block in front of her. The knife had taken off the first joint of the index finger on her left hand, and the blood was spreading in ragged spurts. The ship lurched, Alice said numbly, staring at Dan'l. Didn't you feel it, jerk? It pushed the knife to the side. Get something to stop the bleeding, Lindron said. Dan'l looked around in panic. Oh, I'll do it myself. Lindgren finally said and she did